Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Public Lecture. My name is Professor Sahar Amr, and I'm the chair of the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures in the School of Languages and Cultures in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning, and research practices within this university, May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the aboriginal custodianship of country. We are very pleased to welcome tonight Bessim Youssef and the Chaser to the University of Sydney. We have a long-standing connection with members of the Chaser team as alumni of our university. They are a great example of the power of political satire to change the conversation in our society as is Bessem Youssef, who is a global icon of freedom of expression and a poignant example of how political comedy can influence public opinion. And like all of you present, I am thrilled to be here and very much look forward to this conversation between Bessem Youssef and Chris Taylor. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Professor Amir. Um, my name is Julian Morrow. I'm uh, from The Chaser and the ABC. It's a great honour to be here. Uh, because I'm from the ABC, we do have an obligation to be balanced, so I also have to say it's also not a great honour to be here. Um, as a former student of uh, Sydney University and somebody who's done exams in this very room, I want to say what a great post-traumatic stress it is to be here right now. Um, I spent many years at the University of Sydney, some of them involved in education, and I uh, got a lot out of this uh, fine institution, mostly stationary, to be fair, but also uh, a couple of degrees and some very good experiences. Uh, it's amazing to see so many people here today for this event, and when I arrived, I saw queues streaming down the stairs and out into the quadrangle. I haven't seen queues that long since I tried to enrol in the arts faculty in 1992. Um, of course, Basim Yusuf is here for the 16th inaugural Chaser Lecture, and we are uh, greatly uh, appreciative of our uh, partners and supporters in that venture, including in particular the University uh, of Sydney. Uh, the 16th inaugural is without doubt going to be the finest Chaser lecture ever, because it's the first, uh, but also because of the quality of our guest speaker. Uh, Basim Yusuf is, of course, one of the most prominent global symbols of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And it really couldn't be less appropriate for him to be appearing with us, who are, I would say, some of the most prominent abusers of free speech in Australia, at least. Uh, Chris, obviously, and I are happy to be here with one of the world's most respected satirists, and we are deeply grateful to the curator of Sydney Ideas, Meredith Hall, uh, for putting on this event, and of course uh, to uh, Professor Amir and uh, everyone from Sydney University who's made today possible.
and we're out of time, but thank you for coming, Master. Um, thank you. Uh, thank you. What, what a fantastic turnout, um, which I think speaks volumes for just um, how many people in, in this country and in this... I, I think they're inside because the weather is crappy outside. <laughs> That's the only reason they came. And um, by the way, I'm very, very upset for the chaser people because you promised me sunshine, surfing, and sharks. I didn't get any. So the night is still young. Um, yeah. We can arrange a shark between now yes, and uh, midnight. Yes. Um, thank you so much for coming. It's a genuine, genuine pleasure and honour uh, to be in conversation with you and to have you here at the uh, the university. I guess out of interest, um, how many people in the hall tonight have actually seen Bassam's work on air when it was on air in Egypt? Who watched the show from Egypt? Oh, wow. Now I'm scared. Wow. <laughs> And People you, have been stalking me. Yes. My follow-up question is, would you prefer we conduct this interview in Arabic, not English? Okay. Arabic it is. Like, that would be a disadvantage yeah. for you, but it's okay. <laughs> um, first of all, I, I'm always interested, whenever I speak to um, successful comedy people, I'm always interested in what you liked in comedy. Like when growing up uh, as a kid uh, in the lounge room watching the TV, what, what were the sort of comedy TV programs or radio programs that informed your comedy palette? Well, like any Egyptian kid, you start with the, like the Egyptian comedy, the 1950s and 60s movies, the black and white, and then you go into the modern plays, and then I started to get introduced to uh, sitcoms. And then when I started to watch, first of all, of course, you get attracted to the most slapstick of all. You watch Friends. And then, uh, then I tried to watch Frasier. Then I didn't understand it. It was too complicated. And then I got it, and it became my favorite talk, uh, like uh, sitcom. And then I started to uh, get into the late night format. And then there was... Uh, many like David Letterman and then and I remember watching John Stewart for the first time I said my god this guy is funny but I have no idea what he's talking about right. what is what are Republicans and Democrats and why is everybody dissing Fox News now I understand but um, and I blame Australia for Robert Murdoch by the way but uh, uh, and then I started to get into political satire, and I actually had to educate myself about what is it to uh, like, uh, uh, understand political satire and, 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 and educate myself about the political scene in America, because it was a totally different, if you don't understand the references, there's no way you're gonna get the humor. So I started to be more involved in American politics and say, oh, they have two parties, one Democrat, one Republican. Was there a, a moment that you could pinpoint where you you realized there was actually a distinction between comedy and satire, that there was a type of comedy that could actually be comedy with intent. Yes, uh, and this was pretty much uh, apparent in, in, in the political satire shows in the States. Uh, in, in the Arab world, we hardly didn't have any of these. As a matter of fact, I remember 2008, 2009, I, I sh like by chance, I, show, I saw a show on YouTube, it's called CNN, it's a Lebanese show. It was a political satire show, and it was actually, well, we have something in the Arab world, because, but because it was very local and very confined to Lebanon, it didn't gain much traction in the Arab world. I said, like, I would like to do something like John Stewart in, like, in the Arab world, and that was in 2009. I didn't know how. I didn't know that two years later, 
there's going to be a revolution. And yeah, right. Yes. <laughs> Before we get to the revolution, I'm, I'm interested in your views on what life was like under Mubarak, who was in for 30 years, and I, and I learnt that you were actually thinking about leaving Egypt. You were, as Julian mentioned, you were a surgeon, very successful surgeon, had a great tempting job offer um, from America. Yeah, uh, in, in Cleveland, out of, uh, of all places. Cleveland, the, the heartland of yeah. American satire. <laughs> and um, and you, were t you were thinking of taking that very seriously. Was that because you were frustrated just as a citizen of Egypt with what Mubarak was doing, or because you wanted to pursue medicine in a country where you thought you could most yeah, succeed? Yeah, it's the second option. I mean, I, I, I think that, I mean, I, I didn't like the way uh, the medical system was going, and it's, it's the same for so many people who are frustrated from their line of work, and it be, it, this, this is the result of, people talk about the 30 years of Mubarak, but they ignore the 60 years of the military rule since 1952. I mean, for 60 years, we have been under military rule. It doesn't matter if you take off your uh, military, uh, military suit and you become a, a, civil, a civilian, it's still military. And uh, because of that, there was like a slow decline and deterioration of the country. And uh, you, you, you just, it doesn't work anymore. And you see the rest of the world, and you see countries that were on the same level, like South Korea, like the same exact spot there you were 20, 30 years ago, and then look at there we are, and we're just standing still. So this, like the, the word that would describe Mubarak's series, it would be stagnation. Stagnation. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and there's a lot of people frustrated, a lot of people tried to leave, and uh, it wasn't a political decision. I was not politically active. I, as a matter of fact, when the 25th of January, the, the revolution happened, I was like, what's happening? I wasn't on any of the revolutionary Facebook pages. I heard there's something with someone uh, or, or a call from Facebook pages to go out in the street, and I was just watching television, like, what's going on? It was a surprise for all of us. I, I, I got involved later, but that was the, the case for so many Egyptians. I'm sure here, if you're from Egypt, or I have relatives in Egypt, many of them were not even, we didn't even care about politics. It's stagnant. Yeah, right. And we started to get involved after the revolution. It, it was certainly always um, depicted in, on the Australian media, and I guess the, the Western media, as a big people's movement. And you know, we, everyone saw those huge scenes from Tahir Square, and it looked like the whole city was out kicking against the system. But Obviously, Tahir Square is not big enough to accommodate the whole city. So, would it have been? How big was that movement when the first so-called Arab Spring started to um, take bloom? Well, well, it it is it was big. I mean, like it started in Tunisia, and the, the reason that we did our revolution is that we just got jealous. So, we wanted to do our own revolution. And but uh, there is something about the numbers because this is what people. This is what we got wrong in Egypt about people showing off their numbers. Oh, these people, what, one or two million people in Tahrir? There are 90 people in, 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 in their houses who didn't go in. There, revolutions are not done by numbers. It's always carried out by a critical mass. Uh, you never, like if the French Revolution, the, the, the Russian Revolution, whatever, it didn't have like the whole population going out. It's always a, a, a small group of people who had like the ability to change and they were considered as a critical mass that were tip of the scale and you, they would make a movement. So uh, the, the, the way that the media would actually um, contradict the revolution, like, oh, there's, they're not the, every population in Egypt. And 
no, no complete population goes out to make a, a revolution. Yeah. As a matter of fact, most of the people are just staying there, seeing which part you will win, and they just want their needs to be fulfilled. Mm. It's, it's, it's not a numbers game. You, you did play a role eventually, um, still as a surgeon, um, actually attending to injured protesters yes. in the square. Can you sort of paint a picture for us? What was it? What, what was the vibe like at, at, at the sort of epicenter of those protests? Was it exhilarating? Was it scary? Was it chaotic? Or, or all of those things? Well, it's it's all of the things that we were. Uh, I remember um, uh, the, fir the 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 first of October, where or second of oh, sorry. 2nd of February, where the camels went into attack. Yeah, so out of all the weapons that we used, we used camels. And um, <laughs> very Middle Eastern. Just like, we cannot be more stereotypical. So, <laughs> so we, I, I was in the hospital working, and then the head surgeon, the head surgeon of the team saw this, and he said, like, all right, do we have any more uh, cases on the list? He said, like, no, we don't have anything. So if we have anything that's not critical, we can push for tomorrow. And the whole team decided to go with the medical supply. And when we arrived there, we found out that so many doctors just went there spontaneously. And makeshift clinics were made. And uh, people were just look. I was, doing, I was not even there as a revolutionary. As a matter of fact, I was, I, at a certain point, I got jealous. And it's like, I want to throw like, a rock. So I went to the <laughs> front line. Just to create work. <laughs> Is that near you? I think I, uh, that's the security set. Yes. Uh, have we lost Basim? I think you cut me off. Try. Oh my God, that was. Oh, that's intentional. <laughs> There's censorship in Australia too. It's not uh, just in I, Egypt. I, I, can't, I can't believe that happened. So um, what happened was that um, uh, we we went there, and so I, I tried to my luck and threw one stone, and it slipped and just like went straight to the back of one of the protesters on our side. <laughs> And he looked back, and I just looked out there and said, all right, no more throwing rocks for me. And <laughs> I just like, I, I'll just stick for uh, like, you know, fixing wounds other than causing it. And, uh, and it was funny because, all right, so the people here from Egypt understand the really, how close we are with our parents and how we are scared of them. So my mom would call me and say, like, I'm going to go to a quiet place. Like, oh, I'm at home. I'm watching stuff from television. We're not going to tell her that we are in the middle of like clashes, she, she wouldn't get worried. And I called my wife, like, tell her that I'm sleeping next to you. And um, so it, it, it was it. I mean, we were just, we, we didn't have any agenda in our minds. As doctors, we were just like fixing wounds. Mm. We, we didn't, ha I, I, didn't, I didn't know what would happen tomorrow. I didn't know what kind of movements or what are the powers that working on the ground. All I know that this was genuine. And when you go home and you come back and you see that everything is a conspiracy and these people are going out for a 50 euros and a, and a dinner box from KFC, because this was the rumor, and this was the, what was the mainstream media, that uh, state media would tell people. Am I back? Oh, yes. Back. Yes. And uh, you, you find the, the, the amount of deceit and uh, hypocrisy and the lies that was pumped into the media it just, it was very infuriating. So after the revolution, I said like, maybe we should do something about it. So I started to document, like collect the videos from YouTube and put together a John Stewart-like show. So my dream kind of like came true and uh, this is how it started. And it, you were sort of mentioning that there was nothing like this in Egypt before, was there? There was the show in Lebanon, I think that you mentioned. Yes. Was it, do you think part of, I mean, Julian mentioned the numbers, and we saw in the video just the huge ratings and scale. Do you think part of that was 
uh, not just the outstanding quality of the work, but also there was nothing else like it on TV? Well, well yes, uh, that gave us the jump start. But I, mean, I started from YouTube, and then I did like a small show on television for a year, but the real jump was made when we decided to go all, all out and do it in a, in a live audience theater. That again was something new. We were, we were ahead of other people. There were other people doing the same, but we were kind of, we want to go one step ahead. So, so there were other satirical shows on TV? Yes, but I think we were the more influential because we, we cared so much about research and we invested much, much of the budget into hiring researchers. So we would get stuff that nobody, uh, nobody else would get. And uh, the idea of to go in, 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 uh, on, on a theater and use real audience, it's not paid extras, because you can, you can know, the you, can, you can feel the quality yeah. of the laughs, the quality of the reaction of the audience. Because we, we had live audience uh, shows in the, the Arab world, but you can know that they are fake. So we, we said, and I remember like when I was talking to one of the, um, I wanted to recruit a writer, and I told him I want you to come and work in the show, and he said like, are you really going to do a real life audience? I was like, yes. And he said, what if they didn't laugh? And I said, then we will have to write better jokes. <laughs> and I said like, this is gonna be a challenge, but I said like, but I think we can do it. And this was like, when we were doing this, because the budget of, the, of, of going on, on live show and doing it once a week was unheard of. People are, are used to much smaller budget and doing it daily, mm. so you have the quality being spread out and the quality was very poor. So people were making fun of us. I said like, it's gonna fail, so you're not gonna ever like recoup the investment. But we did many times, like uh, many, many times, the, the, the stuff that was uh, spent on, uh, on the show. And it is just like a way that I wanted, I, I'll tell you something personal, like I, when I went to Sean Stewart, I went there and I wanted to know how he does it. You picked and, his brain and, and the brain of his whole team. Yeah, and, and, and I, said, I said like, I wanna do this. And, and, then, and then he was very generous. And I came to Egypt, and, and, and some part of me is like, I want to do it to impress John whenever he comes to Egypt. Oh, wow. I know, it's so sweet, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I kind of like, I was moved by him, and I said like, I want, and when he came, he was very impressed that we actually pulled this over. And for me, that was like one, like a, a peak for me. Because what I, I just don't get it, because you, you know, even, um, people who've been in, in television for years, people like Letterman, Stephen Colbert, say it took them so long to learn the craft, but your story is just unprecedented. I, I actually don't understand how you were a doctor one day and then making such a successful TV show. How did you learn just the craft of putting together a TV show beyond just um, absorbing everything you saw Stuart do? Uh, because I'm a doctor, I'm a nerd. So I work a lot and uh, I don't tire. So I was actually, people were, were, were complaining that I make them, I overwork everybody. So I'm the first one that comes to the office, I'm the last one who leaves. I'm a nerd. And I mean, it was it, it obsessive, just, and, and you're a real perfectionist? Yes, mm. so I was extremely like, I mean, I always tell people I was not the funniest guy on the show. There were writers who would write better lines than I was. But like, I, I, my role was to lead the team and use everybody's talent to get together and, and, and produce the best uh, craft. There was not, it was more of a teamwork, but I'm not the only one on the team. There are like other talented people on the team that were wonderful. And uh, it was just like hard work. Mm. It was just like, how can we do this? And we had a very 
self-criticizing uh, process after each show. I mean, if we did a really good show, I would go and I would be very gloomy and people say, what's wrong with you? I so, like, I don't know how we can top that. So we have to top it next week. Yeah. So I, I, the, the minute that we finish taping, I wouldn't depressed till the next show. And it was, uh, yeah, God bless my wife. She you has, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should do what the chaser do. We always ensure we always only do bad shows. Yes. So we can always top it the following yeah. week. <laughs> um, when people talk about uh, The Daily Show or, or The Colbert Report, they're often talked about as political satires, which is true to an extent, but what they really are mainly are media satires. Stuart is, as you said, loves drilling down on, on Fox News. And to what extent was that the same with your show? It, it, it seems you were as fascinated, if not more so, with state-run media and the Egyptian media than just the yes. political systems that put them in place. 80 to 90% of my criticism went to media because media in Egypt is different from media in the West. It, a big part of it is not dictated, let's say inspired, right. by people in power. So basically, when you hit at them, you're basically hitting in, to, in, yeah. to power in, in an indirect way. And uh, for me, media is a very powerful tool. And it is propaganda at the end of the day. And the propaganda is very strong. And the only way it can survive is by shutting down other people who call out the propaganda. And uh, what we did was, because we were recording all the shows. Yes, if the president or the prime minister would go out and make a speech, we would comment on it. But it was always, most of our commentary was against the media. Mm. So, for example, I would tell my team, it doesn't matter what the president said, because he can say something as, how do you do? It's not the how do you do, it's how the media would take it and think that this is the most genius thing ever said. Or, or if, if they would like belittle someone too much or like put someone high up too much, the exaggeration, the media circus mm. is what gives you the material that you work with. Because this is how they affect the masses. This is how they, 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 they can manipulate the masses and, and brainwash many of the people. Can you give us some specific examples of, of media behavior or, or media broadcast that particularly amused or outraged you while you were on air? Yeah, I can, get, I can think of two examples. One in the time of Morsi and one at the time of Sisi. I know like he was not, he was still the Minister of Defense, but still the time of Sisi. And uh, so during Morsi, his media was hitting the topic of because he's a Muslim Brotherhood, because he's religious, then he's okay. So anything that it doesn't, it's not relevant, anything that he does. It's about, and, and if you criticize the president, you're criticizing Islam. So they're putting you, and they put this kind of like trap that uh, they, they scare people away. And we went in and we went through that and we said like, no, if you criticize the president or the Muslim, you are not representatives of Islam. Islam has no representatives and you're just like human beings who are elected. On the other side, the media during Sisi did the same thing. If you criticize Sisi, you're criticizing the army. And for many Arab countries, the army is even more sacred than religion. It's wow. even scary. You, you and, and your show, uh, 
is frequently credited with playing a role in um, in bringing down Morsi and the. I don't like that. I don't that's like, what I was going to like ask that, you. That do, you no. do you accept that, or do you no. feel uncomfortable with that? No, no I, feel, I feel very uncomfortable being credited with that. When people say like you are responsible, for, I'm just like no, this is this is not true. What I did during the Muslim Brotherhood is was I was pointing out the what I thought the points that should be criticized. And after that, I did the same, but, but there was a huge difference between the two. First of all, during Morsi, there was like a, a big disparity between, there was the Islamist media, and there was the so-called liberal, let's say the non-Islamist media. And the non-Islamist media was big and influential, and everybody was like on the president, like against Morsi and his group. After that, the media was neutralized. Everybody was like ha going into this one direction, and we were the only ones, or one of the very few, who were against that direction. So yes, maybe our ceiling was not as high as Morsi, but compared to what was around us, it was very risky. I mean, it, it was very difficult to actually go against the crowd, because uh, it's a difference between a group of people who were not supported by the military or the army or the intelligence or the media or the legal system, and then you have someone who have been actually owned the country for 60 years. Hmm. Um, so the, 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 the fact about me crediting the fact that they, fall, no, I think that the Muslim Brotherhood did fatal mistakes. They, they uh, and I say that, like, we said that to them. They, First of all, I remember them calling me. It's like, please be on our side or whatever. And they give promises. And if people remember the Fairmont Hotel promises. And then once they got into power, they turned their back to the revolutionary who helped them get to power. And then there was the constitutional declaration. And then there's the violence in the street. And then they were the ones who basically sided with the army and gave the army bigger rights in the constitution and, and kind of an immunity. And at the last moment, they had blind faith in the army leaders. And they sided with the Salafists, where this is like the more right-wing Islamists. And then the Salafists and the army were the first one to betray them. So you, kind, you alienated everybody. Mm. And then it's very difficult to tell me that I brought them down. You kind of like, you, you stayed in the way that if these people have said, all right, let's do it together, it would be very difficult for the army or otherwise to, to move them from power. But, I mean, they were not smart like the Muslim Brotherhood of Tunisia, who basically looked as like, okay, we don't want to be like Egypt, so let's work together. And they accepted to be part of the political process instead of the only part of the political process. Uh, so, yeah, I, I reject the narrative that I, I played a role. And as a matter of fact, if I played a role, I would have played the same role but I was not allowed to. Yeah. It's the difference between somebody, I mean, both regimes tried to stop the program. And we had threats and warning from the Muslim Brotherhood. But the difference is one regime could and one regime couldn't. One regime had the ability and one regime didn't have enough ability to do it. The, I, I, re, I also reject the fact that one regime is more democratic than the other. Mm -hmm. One regime had time, the other didn't. Yes. Do you believe um, political comedy or satire has any influence at all, or, or are you of the view, which certainly I, I think Julian and I would say, whenever you hear Stuart interviewed or the British counterparts, they very much are very aware of 
how little power they have. And not only do they say that, they, they think that's appropriate. They don't think it's the satirist's role to change governments or change policies, but very much just to remind those who are in charge that not everyone necessarily agrees with them. That's a useful cathartic role you play with your audience. But there's a very real, real belief amongst political comedians in the West that satire has no potency or impact, and nor should it. What, what's your view on that? Well, I always say that what satire does, what comedy does, it just brings more people to the table. This is what we do. We, do not, we are not uh, influencers of change. It's the people who makes the change, not us. It's just like comedy is a very attractive tool to bring the average man who would be otherwise not involved in the political discussion because politics is very complicated. It, and can, politics, make it, it can make it accessible. Yeah, it makes it accessible. The politics is very complicated and sometimes very dull. Quite boring. Yeah, boring. Mm. So when they, when they see the political uh, uh, current affairs done in a, in a, in a, in a, in a funny way, they're more involved. You can actually tell them about what the Congress is doing to you, or what the Parliament is doing to you, and why is it wrong, and why, why you should actually speak. Uh, but the, the, the role of the satirist ends just there. Whatever happens afterwards, it's up to the people to make the change. We are not freedom fighters, and we are not political leaders. We are not demagogues. We, as a matter of fact, John Stewart, for example, rejected the fact that he's an activist. And when, when people asked him to do more stuff, he went into a rally in Washington, and he was accused of being an activist. Yes. Yeah. So uh, I, I think our role just like stands in the boundary of telling people our opinion. And we are one product of a huge market of media that they say their opinion. And it's up to the people to follow what they think is right. We have a very limited role, and the fact that you put more pressure or more responsibility on some on a comedian, I think it's not fair. I think it's always interesting when you hear um, political comedians talk about you and sort of use words like heroic. I, I think that you often kind of detect a, a jealousy in their voice as well, because you got to do political comedy in an environment and in a country where the stakes were really high. And I, I guess I'm sort of interested in whether you would rather do satire in a country like Australia or America, where the stakes are quite low, but you have absolute freedom, or is it actually quite empowering to do satire in a place where the stakes are high, but you are living in constant fear or danger? Well, I would come to Australia if you gave me the passport. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, border, border force won't <laughs> let that happen. Yeah, I mean, that's a sellout. I mean, the total, I mean, uh, well, uh, there, there's, 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 there's two things. First of all, uh, I, I think with great risks comes, like, I don't know, great glory. <laughs> so I, I was blessed that, like, uh, there's a lot of political satirists around the world, but because of my situation and, and the country's situation, we were highlighted. So it's, it is, it is, it, there's a lot of glory, but I will have stomach ulcers if I just continue doing that because it's too much. It's uh, sometimes you want to feel all right. Can we do something like you know less dangerous and um, write a rom com? So, so, so uh, to answer your question, I have absolutely no regret of what happened. I think that we made. Uh, but we, do you get the kind of jealousy other people feel where you, you, your canvas that you're playing on is, it's things things really matter. Like it's. Yeah, I, I mean it it does, but you have to have some sort of a minimal levels of security for the people to tell their, uh, to say their opinion. Mm. I mean, because, uh, I mean, it was a daily event. I mean, we have people like rounding in front of our theater, burning my, my, uh, my pictures. 
and we have to be inside writing jokes. And it's, it's, it's nerve-wracking, you know, and, and, sometimes, and, and if I can get it, I mean, most of my team were in their early, early 20s. Wow. And, they, and many of them would actually leave their homes every day coming to the theater against the will of their parents. And it, it, it was like, it was an uphill fight making the show every time. Can you take us into the writer's room or the production office during that period? Were there, were there debates amongst you all about should we be going on, can we go on, or was it all just focused on getting that script No, no, we, we, we didn't put that a part of the discussion because if you think about the threats, it's, it's, a, it's a very crippling feeling. So we, we kind of liberated ourselves from all the fears and went in and just like made the jokes. And uh, it, we had a funny discussion. We were someone who said just like, ah, this is the one that's gonna close down the program. Yes, that's right. it. Yeah. And we kind of like- Did we, you compete to see who could do the we, most uh, we actually, seditiously? We actually put like wages and bets when would be the last uh, episode. Somebody won at the end, but. Um, <laughs> and as if, as if you see like, you know, we, we saw it all coming. Yeah, I mean, this, you predicted it in the video. This was 11 weeks before we were shut down, and uh, we 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 knew it. Just, we we just like I remember like after we were um, banned the first time, and it went in. I told everybody, listen, I just wanted you to know that like our time in this theater is limited. So we're gonna go in and do the best jokes ever. We're gonna do the best work ever. And if they're gonna shut us down, we're gonna be shut us down on our highest performance. Not because we were afraid, because they're gonna shut us down anyways. It does, oh, thank you, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. You know, I may as well have just made this up, but it's true, so anyway. <laughs> just let, but but it, it, I, tell, I tell them, listen, I mean, this is, now we are up to a regime that is not very tolerant, so if we lowered ourselves, our ceiling of, of freedom of expression, they're just gonna lower it further down. So we would just like kinda to, just like push it until it all cracks down in our head. So this is actually what, what happened. We, at the, till the end, we tried to push it, and None, not a single person on this show has any regrets. Not a single person said, oh, we wish we had just said this joke because we said it all as much as, we, as possible. So it's that's good. great. Yeah. The other thing um, that's very much a symptom of our system here is a real um, entrenched belief in the importance of a separation of church and state. Yes. How important do you think that is? And um, I know it looks like an old church, right? What is, I know, we are in a church. What, what do you think are the dangers or, or the merits of combining church and state? Well, I think history speaks about that, right? I mean, we saw how church, when church was part, or, or actually it was the system, we saw what was your, like at that time and what's Europe after. Um, for us in the Arab world, I wish that we have this, but it's a process, it's a long process. And I know there is uh, a lot of people say, let's do it now, but like I, I tell people, uh, look at Europe 70 years ago. They, will ki they killed 50 million people in the Second World War, and 100 years before, they were killing each other for God. So it's for God and for fascism. And we need to go through the same process. Europe is not the Europe of today. They didn't get into the desperation of today unless after a very long struggle and blood and war and bloodshed. And 
I think maybe what's happening in the Arab world, maybe there's a silver lining to it. It's right. horrible right now when you're living in it, mm. but maybe after maybe a couple of generations, maybe people will understand that you need to separate church and the military from the state because it, it's not sustainable. There's, and, and I always tell people, uh, the thing about the West, they look at the Arab world and they always think that if they have a military dictator, it's a much better option than having some sort of like an ISIS. But they don't understand that a military dictator eventually will lead to ISIS. It, 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 what we don't have, we don't have, uh, don't think that this is a, a, a safety valve because most of the Western administration, they just focus on their four years term and they just want to have everything quick fixed and I just, as long as nothing happened on my watch, so they keep delaying it and they, and they, and they deepen the problem by just like delaying the fact, that they delaying the explosion. But it will explode in everybody's faces at the end. And, I'm, and I'm, I know that it sounds very gloomy, bleak. but uh, <laughs> very bleak, but I mean, it, it, it's the way things are. We have to get our own share of education, and, and history will not make us exempt of, of that kind of education like the rest of the world did. The American Revolution that have produced the Bill of Rights, they went through hardship, and then they had to, to go through civil uh, war in order to uh, ab abandon slavery, and then they had to go into another hundred years of struggle for the civil rights movements. I mean, th this is the way people struggle and get their rights and, and get removed the holy uh, ideas, whether of the military or of the religion, to get it out of the system. And it's, it's a very long purging process. Bassam Youssef.